Uh, Church, we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 11 to 23. And this is a sermon uh, entitled Facing Fear out of Nehemiah. We've been walking step by step, verse by verse through this wonderful passage. So I'm going to read and then I'm going to pray and then we'll set the context and uh, we'll look together at God's word tonight. Nehemiah chapter 4, we'll start in verse 11. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and just put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. And when I saw their fear... I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had uh, frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work, and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword, girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us." Verse 21, so we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. And at that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, you know it. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for this word. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the Old Testament, Lord, for how uh, you worked um, in your people, Israel, foreshadowing, Lord, how you would work in the midst of your New Testament church. And so, Lord, help us to understand what Um, this meant for Nehemiah and for the people of Israel in history and help us understand and, and, and realize what it means for us today as your people who are saved, who are redeemed, and how we can use this to fight fear in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. We trust that your spirit will work through your word as it's faithfully preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Excuse me. Well, I want to set the context a little from where we've been in the book of Nehemiah so far. As we said, this is an Old Testament book, right? So there are things that are happening in in the thread of redemption in the Old Testament that are for a purpose. Uh, Here, what we've seen so far is Nehemiah is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and he is given a task as he hears about the state of his people in Jerusalem. The Lord impresses upon him, and he obeys in carrying out a plan to go and rebuild 
the walls of Jerusalem to go and help the people of the Jerusalem who were weak and feeble people rise up again as God's people and, and, and fulfilling what God had originally promised, which was foreshadowed in, in Genesis 12, that he will have a place for his people. Remember, Israel, Jerusalem was still the holy land in the sense for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, although it was pointing forward to an even greater kingdom, the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament, right? And so we understand Nehemiah was charged with this and he goes and he scouts the land and he sees all that is needed. He meets with everyone he needs to meet with to get the supplies. And then in chapter three, we saw that they're carrying out the work and everything's going pretty well. We had that long list of, of people from, from, uh, from people who work with gold, from perfumers, from all kinds of people working on this wall. They're working together, they're united in focus and there with a common drive to accomplish God's work. Well, let's think about this in the New Testament light. Uh, God has not called us as his people to build a physical wall around some particularly earthly city, no, but he has as his people, as his spiritual kingdom, called us to build walls of doctrine, walls of understanding doctrine and spiritual lives around our own hearts. There are things that we need to be protected from in our spiritual lives. And so we saw that as Nehemiah and the, the, the team got together, that we as well as God's church in the New Testament need to take precautions and need to look at working and how we can grow in our doctrine and protect our uh, immediate selves, our, our families, and our churches from what the world would have to offer in its worldliness and ungodliness. Well, as we know, when things go well in our lives, in our spiritual lives, as we're walking with the Lord, the enemy absolutely hates that. And so uh, what we've seen and what Brother Corey brought to our attention last week was that God's enemies like to use certain tools to help tear down the walls of the church. We see this pictured in Nehemiah in the Old Testament and we see it come to fruition in our lives in New Testament. Brother Corey brought three uh, tools that God's enemies like to use to tear down God's people. Uh, we saw that ridicule was one. The devil tried to ridicule the work, uh, the workers, their materials, and the finished product. And we saw that Nehemiah responded to that by praying and releasing the ridicule to God and then continuing to build the wall, right? As a, that wonderful verse says in verse six, so we built the wall. Uh, the second tool used by God's enemies was uh, intimidation. The enemy tried to stop the work through uh, intimidation, the threat of an attack. If you don't stop, guess what's going to happen? Well, uh, the Bible says that uh, in verse eight of, of chapter four, all of them conspired to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance uh, in it. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah also responded to that attack by praying and then setting a watch against them day and night. And then thirdly, we looked at the weapon of discouragement. Uh, those dwelling too close to the enemy actually began to listen to the voice of the enemy. They became discouraged and began discouraging others. We learned last week to not to give ear to the voices of doubt and unbelief, lest they discourage us as God's people. <clears throat> well, really, this evening, what I want to do is I want to show you a fourth weapon the enemy uses to stop the work of God our Father. Um, the weapon, as you probably know from the title, is fear. And we can all attest that this is often a successful weapon that the enemy uses in our lives. Fear 
has paralyzed and shut down many Christian warriors. We live in a world full of fear. And church family, if we are ever going to be victors over this, we have to learn how to deal with fear. What we want to do tonight is from this text, I want to answer four questions about fear And don't be too overconfident at how quickly I go through the first three, because the sermon is really in the fourth question, which will be what we learn from our text and how to face fear. Those four questions, I'll give them very quickly, and then we'll go back over them. Uh, The four questions are, what is fear? How does fear work? Where does fear come from? And then finally, how do we deal with fear? So let's begin with that first question here, what is fear? That's our first question of tonight. What is fear? Well, you may feel like you have a little bit of a definition of what fear is. You're smart, intelligent people as well. But let's look at some of the Hebrew definitions of one of the Greek definitions as well uh, that we see used in Scripture. The Hebrew word for fear is yar, which means to make full of dread. There are two words that are used in the Greek. uh, Delia, which means to be a coward or timidity. And phobio, which, by the way, is where we get our word phobia, right? Which means to alarm, to make frightened, to cause someone to take flight or to invoke terror. So fear is anything that could cause you to dread, to be alarmed, to be frightened, that creates cowardice in you, that strikes terror in your heart or causes you to take flight. Church family, as we said, Satan is a master at using fear to immobilize the child of God. Fear is an effective weapon. It's such an effective weapon against many believers, but it does not have to be so. So that's the definition of fear. And and now I want to move on to our second question here. How does fear work? How does fear work? What makes it such a successful weapon used by God's enemies against God's people? How does fear work? Well, I want you to notice Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 12. The Bible says here in our text, When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times. This is how fear works, by the way. The enemy is persistent in trying to make you fearful. He will continually remind, 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 remind you of your fear over and over again. Satan is going to strike at you continually with cowardice, with timidity, with terror and alarm to try and get you to take flight from what God has called you to do. So we see the definition of fear. We saw that fear works mostly in persistence. This is how fear works in persistence. Now let's ask the third question, where does fear come from? What is the root of fear? Where does it come from? Where does it originate? At the beginning of verse 11, our text says, plain and simple, our enemies said, a fear comes from listening to the voice of the devil of our flesh rather than listening to the voice of God. Fear comes from listening to the devil or our flesh rather than listening to the voice of God. This is always the case with fear, by the way. 
It is always a choice in the believer to choose to listen to the wrong voice as opposed to the word of God. That word enemy there is a term that actually means adversary, which if you know the definition of the word Satan, it is adversary. And it also describes his work. Satan opposes the child of God. He is our very real, very active enemy. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, very familiar verse to all of us, right? Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Fear comes from the devil, his demons, and his followers that are opposed to the work of God. We learn in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that God has not given us a spirit of timidity. There's that word, another word for fear in the Greek, but of power and love and discipline. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16 says as well, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. When the enemy reminds you that he is your adversary, church family, you remind him of your adoption. When he reminds you that he is your enemy, you remind him who the victor is and who your Abba Father is, and he will cower. You are a child of God, and nothing can come into your life except from the divine permission of the sovereign God. The only one you need to fear is God himself. And I love this saying, if you fear God, you'll fear nothing else. If you fear God, you'll fear nothing else. And so I want you to stop right here and think about this struggle with fear that we have in our Christian lives. Your struggle with fear really at its core comes down to a lack of actual reverent fear of God because you're choosing to listen to a voice that you think is more powerful than what God Almighty promises in his word. And it's not. (laughs) Nothing can thwart the, the sovereign decree of God. If you do not fear God, or if you do not fear God, then you will fear everything else. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 41. He says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent for I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel I will help you declares the Lord and your redeemer is the holy one of Israel fear is not what God says to us fear is the language of the devil and it's the language of our flesh So now that we've seen the definition of fear, we've seen how fear works persistently, that fear comes from the devil and our sinful flesh. Now, the main question of our sermon and our text is brought before us. How do we as the New Testament church handle fear? Well, from the text before us, 
I want us to notice seven things Nehemiah did to battle the fear that Satan tried to bring into the camp in this particular situation. Seven things that we're going to use to battle fear. First of all, notice this. Nehemiah fortified the vulnerable places on the wall. Nehemiah fortified the vulnerable places on the wall. We see this in verse 13. It says, Then I stationed men in the lowest part of the space behind the wall and the exposed places. Nehemiah fortified the vulnerable parts of the wall. There were some low places and and some exposed places in the wall. In other words, some portions of the wall were weaker than others. Nehemiah placed warriors in these weak places for protection. Remember how we already described our enemy as a roaring lion. One thing we know about lions is that they love the easy kill. They'll tack at an animal several times their size, but they actually prefer to prey on the weak and defenseless. So let me ask you, as a a New Testament church who is in desperate need to build up walls of protection from the enemy in our spiritual lives, what are the weak places in your wall? You know them. The disciple of the Lord needs to know at least where he or she is vulnerable to an attack so that we can fortify that area. Do you fear failure in some weak particular area? How can we fortify our vulnerable places? Well, there are a couple ways, actually. I, I think one of them primarily is accountability. Men, You need to make yourself accountable to a godly, spirit-filled brother in Christ. Ladies, you need to make yourself accountable to a godly, spirit-filled sister in Christ. This is something you should pray and seek God for. The scriptures are abundantly clear here. Proverbs 27, 17, another very familiar verse. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Romans 15, 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those who without strength and not just please ourselves. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. You need to discover uh, accountability, but you also need to discover your weak areas and be wise in those areas. Do not willingly place yourself in the path of temptation if you know you're weak in a particular area. If you have a weakness and you know it, it must be guarded. The Bible's clear here as well. I put these on the, uh, a couple pages for you, so hopefully they'll go by a little quicker. The Bible says, and, uh, now flee from youthful lust in 2 Timothy. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, abstain from every form of evil. And Romans 13 and 14 says, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. This is all over scripture, folks. Ephesians 4, 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. We, when we're... When we're facing fear and we're fortifying vulnerable places, do not put yourself in the path of temptation. That's the opposite of fortifying vulnerable places. That's willingly going into the vulnerable places. Finally, I want you to notice here that Nehemiah not only fortified the low places, but he also fortified the exposed places. This, this really meant not only the holes in the wall, but also the area above the wall as well. Not only the low places... But Nehemiah also fortified the high places. I think there's some application here for us. 
See, because often we're tempted to think we are strong in a certain area, and therefore free from falling in that area. This is a mistake. It's been said an unguarded strength is a double weakness. This is true. Nehemiah took nothing for granted. He fortified the high places, the exposed places, as well as the low places. It is prideful and arrogant to think that you are above falling in your exposed places. The Bible clearly warns, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So the first way Nehemiah handles fear is by fortifying the vulnerable places in the wall. Second way he handles fear is he organized by family. This is interesting here. Nehemiah organized by family. We find this in verses 13 and 14 here. This is probably one of those verses that kind of stood out to you as I was reading it. It's very intriguing here, but this is what he did. Read with me the rest of verse 13 and verse 14 as well. And I stationed the people and families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. That's intriguing, I think. I I see several important implications here concerning the family. Nehemiah divided Israel into fighting units by family. By dividing Israel into family units, Nehemiah drew attention to the awareness of what was at stake, right? That's what's at stake. Their very lives. It's why he says, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives. I don't think sometimes we realize in our spiritual warfare what's at stake if we give into fear and slump down in disbelief behind our wall of protection. I don't think so. Listen to me, church, your very family could be consumed by the adversary, and I don't ever want to be someone who forgets the stakes. That's why as I told Ms. Zandra this week, I'm very thankful that she hung a picture in my office of my beautiful family. Because friends, whenever your pastor gets discouraged or tired or fearful, I get to look at that picture You have to remember what's at stake every day, the spiritual welfare of my family. Dad, fight for your family. Mom, fight for your family. Put on the whole armor of God. Pray in the spirit always. Live the godly, consistent life of a leader in front of your family. Do not give them over to the world through fear or through laziness. Their lives are at stake. We cannot be consumed with fear. Because being consumed with fear shows a lack of faith in God. And there are eyes watching you. You are an example to them. Doesn't mean you have to be God, but you have to be reliant upon God, dependent upon God, and let them see that. Let them see that though you are weak, he is strong. Notice also that the family is a refuge here. The family is a a great place of encouragement. We can draw strength from our family when there's no other place. As long as you are right with God and in love with your family, it, it seems to be about all you need in this life. Your family will be with you when no one else is. I cannot tell you the number of times I've found encouragement in knowing that my wife and I have each other. 
Your family should be a great motivation, a great source of strength for you to stand firm in your devotion to Jesus. Let me ask you, are you neglecting your family? You need to fight as a family, but we also need to fight as a church family, right? Finally, notice the work on the wall stopped momentarily until Nehemiah could get Israel organized by families. I love this. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says, take some time off to pull together as a family. Your warfare will be no stronger than your family. So not only did Nehemiah fortify the vulnerable places on the wall, not only did he organize by family in order to fight fear in front of him, but thirdly, Nehemiah shifted the focus from the fear of the enemy to the fear of the Lord. This, this is the big one. <laughs> uh, Nehemiah shifted the focus from the fear of the enemy to the fear of the Lord. Verse 14, we'll read it again. It says, when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Nehemiah shifted the focus from the fear of the enemy to the fear of the Lord. And we've already looked at several Bible words for the word fear, but the word in, in, is yar in the Hebrew and uh, eulabia in the Greek. They're translated fear, but they are used to designate specifically the fear of God. It means, of course, to, to reverence him. Israel had the wrong object of fear. That's their problem. They were attributing to the enemy all the characteristics of the Lord. Fear, reverence, and awe. Those are things that are not reserved for the enemy. They're reserved for the Lord. Nehemiah focused their fear on the right object, the Lord. Nehemiah was saying, don't fear them. They don't have any power. Fear the Lord. Stand in all of him. Reverence him, for he is the one who is great and awesome. Church family, we need to have a healthy fear of the Lord. As we said, when you fear God, you will fear nothing else. If you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. Nehemiah maybe reminded them of, of what we see in Proverbs, in Proverbs 14, 26 and 27. And in the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence. And his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Or what we find in Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But also what you see here in, that, in verse 14 in our text, what Nehemiah really gives them is a battle cry. He says, remember the Lord and fight for your family. That's the essence of this battle cry. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, man, we, we need an old-fashioned revival of God and family. <laughs> this text reveals how we need to remember the Lord. We need to remember the Lord and what he has said in his word. It comes through remembering the promises of God. This is a theme we see throughout scripture. Acts 20, 35, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. And John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you. Our responsibility as disciples of Christ is to remember the words of our Lord. We remember God's word by hiding it in our hearts. It's why we do memory verses every week here at Gray Gables. We not only need to remember what the Lord said in his word, but we need to remember who God is. The text tells us he is the great and awesome God. 
That word for great, by the way, in verse 14, means he is greater than anything you will ever face. The word for awesome is the word yair that we talked about, the word for fear. God is the only one you need fear for everything in your life must be sifted through his hand as a child of God. So we need to remember what he said in his word, remember who he is, and also remember what he's done. So often we need to be reminded of God's powerful works and overcoming the obstacles to the performance of his will in our lives. God had placed it, remember, upon Nehemiah's heart to go and rebuild the walls. Remember, he softened the heart of Artaxerxes to permit Nehemiah to God. He gave him letters for safe passage for timber and, and a guarded transport. The people had rose up and supported Nehemiah's call to the work. Remember, remember, your God is with you. It is his work that you're doing for his kingdom. His glory is what is on the line. Trust him and trust his works when you're facing fear. Matthew 10, 28 reminds us of this truth. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. When you find yourself engaged in fear, facing warfare, do what Paul directed Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2, 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. So, so far, we've seen that in giving us an example for how to handle fear, Nehemiah fortified the vulnerable places on the wall, he organized the family, and he shifted the focus from fear of the enemy to the fear of the Lord. Now, fourthly, and quickly, these last four are quick, uh, he set up a plan of defense here. Fourthly, Nehemiah set up a plan for defense. He wasn't caught off guard. He didn't decide to say, well, I guess if this fear ever comes in again, I'll just know on the fly what to do. He set up a plan of defense. The threats of the enemy, the intended fear of the enemy only caused Nehemiah to lead Israel to be ready. We should not fear the enemy's threats, but we should take them seriously and we should be ready. We should not fear them, but we should be ready. How did Nehemiah get God's people ready? Well, he had a three-fold plan of defense here. He, he, he trained workers and prayed that workers became warriors. That's what happened. In verses 16 through 18, look at what it says. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work, and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. Then go down to verse 21 and see what happened as well. So we carried on the work with half of them, holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. So half the workers were prepared for battle, half the workers continued to work. And even those that worked did so with a sword in their hand, ready at a moment's notice to stand against an attack of the enemy. The armor here mentions, uh, it reminds me of what Brother Corey brought to our attention last week with the full armor of God in Ephesians 6. Church family, you know this, right? As Christians, we are to be worker warriors. We are. It's no uh, difference that, that we live in Callahan here, right? And the, if you just look at what Brother Nate's wearing every Wednesday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, you'll notice a warrior shirt, right? It's, it's a reminder that we are worker warriors. It's what we've called to be. It's what we are called to be. 
doing the work of the Lord, prepared to use the weapons of warfare if necessary. You know what the sad reality is? The sad reality is that many Christians never show up for battle because they either don't know we're at war or they've already made a treaty with the world. I just keep waiting for us to have some sort of rally cry. (laughs) I keep waiting for the battle cry to rise up from the ranks of God's people. We are to be sober and vigilant warriors in this dangerous age of spiritual deception. So, So not only did the workers become warriors, but they were all subject to one voice here. Look at the end of verse 18. It says, while the trumpeter stood near me, In verse 19, I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. See, the workers worked, but they kept their ears tuned to the sound of the trumpet. The trumpet was the Hebrew word shofar. It was used to declare war on God's enemies. The trumpet did two things. It struck fear in the heart of the enemy and it built confidence in the heart of the warriors of God. Look at this as it's used in Numbers chapter 10 verse 9. He says, when you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. If the enemy came, the trumpet sounded. It would not be Israel under attack, but God being the one to declare war on the enemy. It was given attention to the truth that our God will fight for us. What battle plan for the church of the Lord Jesus here? We all need to be subject to one voice. But it's not my voice. It's the word of God. It's his voice. Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. And the sad reality is that many Christians aren't even in the fight. And it's because they are not subject to the voice of the captain of the Lord's host. It's why our charge here at this church is to preach God's word so clear and unmistakable that you would always be ready for battle. Just like the Apostle Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 8, he asked for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So we've seen four things so far, fortifying the walls, organizing the family, redirecting our fear, and preparing our defense. Quickly, three more under the question how we are to handle fear. Number five, notice Nehemiah spoke words of encouragement to the warriors. Nehemiah spoke words of encouragement to the warriors. Notice what he says, both at the end of verse 14 and at the end of verse 20. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. And then he says at the end of verse 20, our God will fight for us. Church family, here is the mark of a true spiritual leader. He takes your focus off of fear and he places it on the great and awesome God. Words of encouragement can help against fear more than anything else. And so often, we often join with the enemy to try and make God's people feel weak for struggling, even though we know we've been subject to that fear itself. Where's the encouragement from God's people? Where's the hope in that? 
Do not join in with the enemy to beat down a fellow brother in Christ. Join them in encouraging them to trust in the promises of God. Barnabas, remember, was called the son of encouragement because he was an encourager. He went around picking up his brethren. Church family, we need more encouragers here today. More folks so in love with Jesus that they choose not to focus on the fear and unbelief, but where do you turn when there is no encourager? What happens when there is no one to encourage? And, and what should an encourager use to encourage? It's the word of God. When fear struck the camp of Israel, Nehemiah, the encourager, went to work reminding God's people of their awesome God. An encourager says, keep on. You can make it. God is with you. Don't quit. Keep fighting. Keep wrestling. Keep struggling. Keep living for Jesus. The Bible is full of wonderful words of encouragement. We need to learn to use them to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. Isaiah 43, 2 says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. There is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean upon your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Or Hebrews 13, one of my favorite words of encouragement, I hope you've heard it from me, 5 and 6, for he himself had said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Friends, we need to learn the word and be encouraged so we can use it to fight the fear used by God's enemies to deter us from God's work. Not only did Nehemiah speak words of encouragement, but the sixth thing he used to handle fear was his readiness. Nehemiah was continually ready. This is kind of weird, okay? I'm not gonna admit this verse took me for a little bit of a loop this week. The second half of verse 23, none of us removed our clothes each took his weapon even to the water. Now that's continually ready, right? This reminds me of actually Gideon in Judges chapter 7 and the 32,000 warriors down to 300 men who lapped the water, putting their hand to their mouth so they could not lose their weapons. 300 were ready for battle. Excuse the expression, but Nehemiah knew a surefire way not to get caught with his pants down. Never take them off, Right? The New Testament has a similar admonition for the Christian warrior. It comes from 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, we must always be prepared for the enemy's attack. Preparation is a great weapon used against fear. Give no place to the devil. And finally, our last lesson learned on how to handle fear from Nehemiah is this question. Was Nehemiah's plan successful against fear? What was the result of these things? Well, we find it actually in verse 15. God had frustrated their plan. Fear failed and faith prevailed. This is the way it always is, church. 
Satan is always defeated as Jesus always makes an open show of him triumphing over him in every conflict. Fear is a weapon that works against you only as you submit to it in unbelief. That's the only way fear can harm you is if you give yourself over to it. But trusting and resting in the providence of Christ, knowing his goodness and his authority over all, resting in him, you will have victory. And God will use the fear of the enemy to make him look silly as he triumphs over him over and over and over again. And we just ask this simple question with that, right? What does it mean in light of eternity? Look at your fear right now. That thing that is just overwhelming you to the point of being crippled by it. And it is real and it does feel painful. I don't want to take away from that. You do feel fear and I don't want to take away from that. But look at it in light of what Christ has done and in light of eternity. Now how silly does it look? If you're a child of God and you're worshiping for thousands of thousands of thousands in the ultimate paradise, praising him forever, you think you're going to go look back on that fear and think, oh, that was a big thing. No, you're going to say, oh, that was silly. But I won because Christ wins. Now I'm resting in the victory. And oh, how foolish of, what, of me was it to fear such a simple such a tedious thing in light of eternity. That's why what we talked about this morning is so important. So I want to conclude here, derive our conclusion from seven statements from our seven lessons. We'll post this tomorrow, I think, on the Facebook site in case you don't get all of them that we see from this text on how to handle fear. First off, let's acknowledge that some of us need to fortify some vulnerable and exposed places in our lives. Let's acknowledge that. Secondly, all of us need to do a better job in our families. We need to also focus on the correct fear object, the Lord Jesus. We need to set up a defense plan, work and, and be ready to war. We are in desperate need of some encouragers in the church today and we must always be ready. And finally, we need to be reminded that the enemy's plans will fail and that Christ has prevailed. Let's ask for the Lord's help to put this defense plan in action together as we close. Oh, Father, you are the God of all creation. You are majestic and holy and wonderful. The earth is yours and all it contains. Father, you've got the entire world in the palm of your hand. You are all-powerful. You are all-knowing. You are sovereign. You are king. You are ruler. You are good. Father, would you help us dwell on who you are? And as we do that, Father, as we sing often, as we dwell on the gospel and your goodness with the things of this earth grow strangely dim because of the light of your glory and grace, Father, we pray that the fears that so overwhelm us in our daily lives, Lord, that, that you would often make them look silly. <laughs> if 
Father, that we would, we would recognize that. It wouldn't lead us to, to shame, to, to feeling that fear. It would lead us to victory, knowing that you are for us, that you are with us, that you are beside us in the midst of that. That your word encourages us to fight on, to struggle on. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is fearless towards the things of this world and bold for the gospel as we have reverent awe and fear for who you are and wonderful joy in what you've done. Lord, would you encourage us tonight? Would you strengthen us through your word? And would you help us as we are in desperate need of grace and putting these plans into action? We ask all of this in the name of our sovereign King Jesus. Amen.